Hi, I'm Lex Marinos, and... Hello, I'm Patricia Ramflett. You're listening to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century, across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week we chat with leading health, lifestyle, finance and fitness experts about how to get the most out of life as we age. Plus we talk with well-known and not-so-well-known Australians of all generations about the issues that affect them. So tune in and... Get connected. Stay connected. Welcome to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century with me, Lex Marinos, and... I'm Patricia Amflett. How are you, Lex? Very well, Patricia. I wish I glowed as radiantly as you do. Oh, gosh. You know why I glow? I'm glowing today. I've got a fair idea. Because yesterday, mm. I took a very good friend to lunch at Diethne's, and I thought of you. Oh. Oh, it was good. Famous Greek restaurant in Sydney. Gee, it's been a stalwart for many years. And what did you pay for aged care, Patty? That's what we're going to be talking about, what I pay for aged care with Rodney Lewis. What a subject. Looking forward to that. And this subject is pertinent to everybody. It's a very important subject. Rodney Lewis will take us through what we pay for aged care. And then what happens? Oh, oh, Jeff's Cafe, recently refurbished, uh, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, new sprinkler system. (laughs) (laughs) It gets a bit hot in there. It gets a bit fiery in there in Jeff's Cafe. Oh, it does. I think they call it robust. Robust, robust, very robust, and a yeah, lot yeah. of heat. A lot of heat gets generated in there for some reason. <laughs> I don't anyway, know they, why. <laughs> they've had to go to the industrial sprinkler system, and uh, we'll see uh, how, hopefully it'll be good. Oh, that'll be wonderful. Do you know that Ian Fraser AC is our very special guest today, taking us to the town of nostalgia? Yeah, what a fascinating story that is. Everyone's story is, is interesting, but it 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 knocked me over. Patricia, every week we hear a story and it's like, wow, what a remarkable life. We do. And then we're going, oh, it's all about the money. It's all about the moolah. The moolah. Yeah, we're saving money on insurance premiums. Is that possible? Well, Professor Michael Sherris will tell us whether it is or not. Oh, that'd be nice to know because it's very expensive, isn't it? Oh, it is. It is indeed. And, do you know, stepping out, we are going to go to Canberra. We are. With Heinrich Stefanik. Heinrich, a good old mate of mine and uh, a once a, one yep. of, what a wonderful servant of community radio Heinrich has been, uh, let me, as well as everything else. But let me tell you, he's made... His contribution has been massive. Huge. Well, it's a great show, Patricia. I suppose we should get on with it. Yep, here we go. What a great topic we have, one that's quite misunderstood by many people. But Rodney Lewis, who's been a solicitor for more than 50 years, is a pioneer of elder law. In 1999, he lectured Australia's first university course in the subject and went on to author Elder Law in Australia. His private practice is dedicated to helping elders and their families with conflicts involving inheritance, loss of capacity and many other issues associated with elder abuse. Rodney has argued that aged care providers whose poor care has caused harm to residents should face damages claims, and he says that Australian consumer law is a powerful tool in this pursuit. Hello and welcome, Rodney. Rodney, tell us about your background and how you became interested in the area of elder law. Well, that's going to go back into ancient history then. Oh, come on, tell us. (laughs) Um, My wife has been a a registered nurse all through uh, our marriage, of course, and she has been doing part-time work in aged care. We used to have very interesting conversations about what happens in an aged care home. She was routinely the RN in charge. And I would normally come away from those conversations thinking, gee, that's not quite right. Because I've had a parallel sort of career, honorary career in human rights, and I've monitored international trials death penalty trials. In other words, I've had a lot to do with human rights. And I started realising that here was a big human rights issue right under my nose and uh, wondering just what this was all about and how it could sort of escape under the under the carpet. Now, this was many years ago. I mean, I, I'm saying, indeed, this was 
just around about the time the New Aged Care Act was being introduced, 1997. So I decided that I would become much better acquainted with the whole system and with elder law in general, which is all the law about ageing, like retirement villages and guardianship and you name it, and you've named some of the things already. Mm. But it's quite a, a significant field. Wills, will disputes, it just goes on and on. So I decided I would ring my local university, as it then was, Western Sydney University, spoke to the Dean of Law, said, have you got a court? that I could take and after a couple of hours of discussion she said to me well why don't you do the course <laughs> you prepare it you give it and let's let's get on with it so that's how it wow. happened so I was thrown in at the deep end and I did that for a couple of years and then after that I was also running a private practice so I then decided I had a lot of materials and nobody else seemed to have those materials and nobody had really focused on the things that I had done uh, at that time. So I decided I'd write a book, and that's what I did. And uh, wow. we're looking at the third edition now. Oh, good on you. What are the main areas of elder law that keep cropping up? Well, they keep cropping up uh, mainly because of uh, conflict within the family. That's the, the sort of case that comes to lawyers. So there'll be serious disputes over the making of wills, and over the division of assets under a will. Uh, that's a common thing, as you know, but the sort of imposition of, of somebody's need to have a greater share in the estate is, is often a cause for really serious family conflict. And that's where we get involved. Uh, that, that leads often to Supreme Court cases. And, of course, there's often a conflict over whether mum or dad was able to, to make that will because they went into aged care only three months later and they went straight into the dementia ward. Mm. I mean, it's that kind of case that we deal with. Powers of attorney are a big source of legal conflict. Guardianship appointments can also be a, a big source of conflict between family members. The most often occurrence of conflict is mum always wanted to remain at home and and pass away at home. She's not going into aged care. I won't let it happen. Mm. That, that kind of conflict usually ends up, uh, if it can't be resolved, ends up in the civil and administrative tribunals around the country. We've got New South Wales, every state and territory has one, NCAT for New South Wales Civil and Administrative, QCAT, SACAT, WACAT, VCAT. So there you go. That's just a, a I mean, I could go. <laughs> If we had two or three hours, I could finish. Rodney, maybe this is a huge answer. How is aged care financed? Well, it's financed by the Australian government. The Australian government took over the financing back in 1997. And there have been several changes to the arrangements. Mm. But currently what we have is the agreement which is made by the incoming resident and we're talking about residential aged care mm -hmm. at the moment, there is, of course, uh, a huge number of people who are also receiving aged care help and assistance at home. But let's just talk about the residential aged care. So when you go into that agreement, you'll see that you may be required to pay a lump sum. That's called a refundable accommodation deposit. And that is calculated according to your means, what, what you've got, your assets. Mm -hmm whether you've got a house, whether you've got more than one house, uh, whether, you, whether you've got only a small amount or a large amount in the bank, that sort of thing. So that's called a refundable accommodation deposit. And then you are given the choice whether you want to pay the whole amount of that lump sum, which is refundable, or whether you want to pay part as a, a daily payment. And that's called a daily accommodation payment. So that is sort of in contention and needs agreement with the provider, the aged care provider, where you have some significant assets and or income. Now, there's also the basic fee arrangement where you might be on the pension and you may not have much in the way of assets, except perhaps your own home. And so that is taken into account. I think the accommodation well, the accommodation fees are paid by the Commonwealth and so are the care fees if you are completely eligible for fully supported 
aged care assistance from the Commonwealth. And it just goes on from there. Now, before I sort of finish my longish answer, I would urge anybody who's thinking about going into aged care, anybody who knows somebody who's thinking about it, that there are advantages if you go and see a financial advisor. If you have significant assets or complicated assets, and they are I mean, in my observation, they're they're pretty well trained in helping people and in improving their financial position. If you try and do it on your own, well, it's a bit like trying to pull, pull your own teeth. The refundable accommodation deposit is determined by the amount of money that has been available, the assets, correct? The refundable accommodation deposit... No, no, it's not dependent on the assets of the of the person. Uh-huh. It's first of all set by the aged care home. Oh, okay. So it depends on oh, the aged care home. You might go to, to some place in, say, Vaucluse, and uh, you, you'll be told that, uh, and I'm guessing here, but, uh, but I'm reasonably confident about my guess, that you'd be told that a, that a, a, a deposit will be somewhere north of $1 million. Gosh. That's the provider's decision and they are running their business. However, where you get sort of into the the intermediate or the median stage or range, often uh, deposits will be in the hundreds of thousands, of course. It might range from a couple of hundred thousand through to... Well, eight, nine hundred thousand. And there are thousands of beds or places in aged care homes, tens of thousands around the country. Of course. Well, there's a couple of hundred thousand actually around the country. Mm. So it's a matter of negotiation. You can split the deposit uh, between, say, paying 50% of the deposit if you've got that money and then paying the rest on a calculation of the amount that is payable divided by 365 and pay that every year. Rodney, what about those people who've been paying rent their whole lives? They don't have any assets. Yeah, uh, good question and many, many people ask themselves that. The good story is that, as I mentioned earlier, the Commonwealth took over the cost of funding aged care back in 1997. They were already providing funds, but this was the big turnaround, as it were. So people without means, without income other than the pension, with very little in assets, are able to enter aged care and the Commonwealth will pay a basic fee for accommodation to the provider and a basic care fee for the care and nursing attention and so on and all the facilities. So combining those two, the pensioner would then be receiving 15% of their pension. The other 85% is, is deducted and directed towards their, their aged care. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the basic arithmetic for it. So nobody misses out who needs it. We've heard varying reports about the, the standard of care and some of the abuse that goes on in hopefully what is a small proportion of, uh, of some of the aged care homes. How is the law covering all of this, Rodney? Is there, is there a law that embraces what happens in nursing homes? Gee, that's a good question, Lex. That has been keeping me awake at night for years. And the problem is that the answer is no. I think you mentioned I've been a lawyer for a long time. I have looked very closely at this and there are lots and lots of gaps in the legal recourse that people in aged care, residents in aged care, can look to. I'll give you an example of the problems, the legal problems. In the Aged Care Act, there is a reference to a charter of rights. When somebody goes into a nursing home, an aged care home, they are told that there is a charter of rights and that they have these rights and they are given a copy of these rights. Now, up until just recently, maybe 2019, that was pretty much it. And they were given an, 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 a copy of the rights, but that was it. And if you have a close look at and analyse the Aged Care Act, uh, you will find, ultimately, <laughs> but this is a bit like finding a, a speck of gold, uh, you'll find a provision in the Act which says that most of the parts relating to care 
and also the rights are not enforceable at law. <laughs> at least oh. as, yeah, right, right. But that's that's one small insight into the work that is needed to be done in relation to aged care legal issues. Let me take you then from that to the most recent problem that we've had with the amendments which the former government was proposing to the Aged Care Act. They've introduced two bills, or they did introduce two bills arising out of the Royal Commission. There was Aged Care Act Amendment number one, then there was Aged Care Act Amendment number two. And just after it had passed the House of Representatives, and just before it went up to the Senate, the government came in with a little amendment and, and the uh, opposition agreed to it. And so it went on to the Senate. Now, that bill was never passed for other reasons, notably the, this very vexed issue of 24-7 registered nurse being on duty. But this little amendment, it was uh, in the ninth schedule to the bill. So get out your pick and shovel and try and find yeah. it, you will. But it said, look, we're going to give you, give providers immunity from civil or, or criminal charges, civil claims and criminal charges, providing they run their restrictive practices by the rules. Right now, that sounds reasonable if you just don't think much about it. If it were implemented, then things like habeas corpus would go by the by for aged care residents. Claims under the consumer law would go by the by. So, I mean, there's a long list, and and so the outcome is uh, or was that it was deferred. I'm hoping, and there are a lot of other people <laughs> who, who, uh, who are in the queue, are hoping that the, our present government won't reintroduce it, but it's, a, it's an astounding discrimination mm -hmm. against people who yeah. don't care. By the sounds of it. So you're hoping, like we're all hoping, of course, that the Royal Commission surely will present us with some positive results at some stage. Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? If, if it happens, uh, we will all welcome it. At the moment, the former government was and this present government is working on a revision and hopefully it's a significant revision of the Aged Care Act. Mm. I've given you a, a bit of an insight into mm. some of its flaws. I, I could you know, go on for a long time. But, yeah, so Royal Commission, huge expense, huge effort, mm. great outcomes, but some of them, you know, fall a bit short, but, but nevertheless, hopefully the Aged Care Act, the new one, will be introduced over the next few months and we'll all get a look at it and we'll be able to talk about it. Gosh, it's a subject that I think we could all agree we could go on oh, all day yes, and um, still human nature gets in the way. The human condition will always, well, almost always Get in the way, if you know what I mean. But yeah, uh, I do. gosh, <laughs> I know you do. We thank you so very much, Rodney, for being our guest today. And would you mind if we asked you to be our guest another time? I'm thinking of many more questions I want to yes, ask indeed. you the next time. Is that yeah. okay? Of course it is. I'd love to mm. do it. Rodney, thank you very much. Thanks, Rodney. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All the very best. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now it's time to have a cuppa in Jeff's Cafe, where people of different ages talk about the theme and interview of the day. We've all been listening to that interview with Rodney Lewis about uh, the cost of aged care. Very interesting conversation it was. Uh, and talking about it today in our intergenerational Jeff's Cafe, we have Jen Exer from around Apollo Bay in Victoria. Tracy, how are you, Tracy? I'm fine, thanks, Jeff. We have Boomer Gary from Woi Woi. Lovely to see you again, Gary. Yeah, great to be here, Jeff. Thank you. And Jen Zeta, lucky, uh, extraordinarily talented audio editor of this show. Lovely to see you again, Lucky. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, you too, Jeff. No worries. And I'm going to start off the coffee drinking episode that we're going to have today, Tracy, with a question to you. Tracy, listening to that interview, it seems to me that Paying for residential aged care is incredibly complicated. What do you think? I certainly think it's incredibly complicated and uh, 
because most of it's all online. In fact, in the newspaper on Saturday, I noticed that they've now got like a navigational area for older people to help them navigate the system. Now, that's a broken <laughs> system. That's terrible. But the, the, most of these people, you know, not not all are, um, and I shouldn't say, you know, um, like uh, they're not that savvy with the internet, but this system that they've got to deal with is obviously incredibly difficult to have another system that you have to get to use that. That's so, and, and, and the aged care side of it, like I suppose to me also a big thing was it boils down to whether you've got money. If you've got a lot of money, you don't have to worry about a thing. But if you haven't got a lot of money or I know recently with my husband, his parents, uh, one went into care, his mum went into care, that was fine. But then about uh, 12 months later, his dad went into care and that changed everything because, of course, the house was then vacant. So it it is a lot about money. It's a lot about the equity, the, yeah. So I found that really interesting, you know, about the lump sum that if you've got assets, you're okay. But without that, you you have no say in it. You get basic care. That that was my understanding of the whole. If you've got no money, you, you'll get soup. Yeah, certainly. I, there's a big surprise there. I think a million dollars was one of the figures that was uh, mentioned. That's I guess that's pretty pretty scary. And I think the lower figure was two hundred thousand. So. Um, and that's to be going to sort of residential residential care. So yeah, they're big they're big numbers. And I, I think you know Ronnie's advice that really um, you know a good financial advisor is pretty key in these situations. Uh, if you do have ass- assets, and um, I guess you want to try and get the best um, be- best result. I also like though that you know even if you didn't have assets. You're still going to be cared for. So the principle, cared. the principle is still, you know, um, respect for everybody, and everybody is going to get, uh, you know, food, shelter, care, and you know, hopefully a bit of love somewhere. So you know, I, I think that's the way it is. People with money have got choice. Um, people with money perhaps don't have as great a choice, but they do have that, you know, safety net of knowing that there there will be a place. Um, and hopefully there's plenty of people there to look after them, to send them in the right, you know, right direction. I suppose that idea is pretty widespread throughout just all generations when it, like in terms of healthcare as well, you know, if you've got the money for it, you can afford private healthcare, you get better looked after, you know, private hospitals, front of the waiting list, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess it's kind of just how society works. But then again, you know, as, you know, as the generations go on, the gap between the rich and the poor tend to get you know bigger and bigger and bigger yeah it's much widening by very much so it's an interesting thing because it it obviously requires a lot of money like uh, Ronnie was saying in the interview that goes into this thing but it's it's a thing and this is a very zoomer mindset of me because I haven't had a lot of experience in the sense of older generations at the end of their life I suppose you know in the last 10 or 10 years or so but uh, you know, you've got all these um, politicians, they're trying to allocate all these funds and look after a society who where they're trying to grow society, you know what I mean, and do the best for the economy, et cetera, et cetera. And then so some people would probably think that, you know, the mo- all this money into the um, aged care system for people that are, you know, in their last three to five years of life might feel like a bit of a waste. So well, we, we needed a royal commission. Yeah, and it, it was it was obviously a problem. Yeah, that's yeah. When Albo had to make that one of his major points of getting elected, yeah, it's obvious. Obviously, was an issue. So, but yeah, it's a it's a tough concept to tackle, especially when you know there's not unlimited money out there, is there? <laughs> and we all are going to need this service eventually. Yeah, even me. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So I can't I can't write it off as ah uh, that won't, that won't bother me. But I'll I'll be there and goodness knows how long. So well. Ha- Hopefully you get the benefits of uh, our hard work. Yeah, well, yeah. hopefully crossed. by then it's you know can, you know improved and it, it can only get get better. Than that. I guess yeah. that's the um, the hope. Um, yeah, exactly. And I don't know. Maybe they're looking into you know broadening lifespans or maybe making it uh, easier for you know in biomedical engineering or whatever. I, I don't know. I'm I'm an arts person, not an yeah. engineering type of guy. So maybe they're looking into. Um, the technology that'll be around in 50 years when I'm, you know, in my 70s or 80s, that it'll re- it won't require 
uh, our bodies be breaking down so gradually. You know, we'll just we might be at a good physical, like ideally we could all be at a physical well being when we're in our seventies or eighties that aged care isn't required. Or uh, you know, well, just in the paper on Saturday, in Saturday's paper, the ad for the old folks home hmm. was a lady in her fifties to sixties boxing. As in quite. So I went, this is where they're marketing too. And trying to make it that it, which is where the money comes into it and trying to make it uh, like a a lucrative and a lovely place to be. Yeah. Where you're not sitting in a chair being fed soup. Yeah. And I haven't had a lot of, like I said, I haven't had a lot of experience with aged care from the grandparents and great-grandparents. I have known that have been in aged care. I've been too young to, you know, it's been like, a all right, we're going to visit, you know, uh, great nan and then I'll be 10 years old or something just running around trying to keep myself entertained. So, I don't really have a good perspective, I guess, on what it really is because all of my living grandparents currently, they all live um, still in their own homes. So, my grandmother just was in, uh, she died um, last year. She got to be 101. She spent wow. eight years uh, I yeah. have such good genetics. <laughs> she spent eight years in care and it was a love. See, luckily she had quite a lot of assets. Mm. So she got, um, and in the country, you know, there's uh, in regional Victoria is where I am. So there is, um, there's quite a vast choice as yeah. far as, yeah. Uh, she got into a lovely place and they really cared for her well i loved visiting her unfortunately we had covid when she turned 100 and no one mm. got yeah. mm. that was a bit sad but mm. you know that's yeah. yeah um and i mean so that's sort of the paying for aged care i maintain you do get what you pay for but yeah this is why my real concern is about people who have no assets or anything that potentially they get less care. But uh, like you said, Gary, though they still get care. Uh, yeah, at the very great. least, some might see it as just kind of lingering. If you know, if they're not given certain care, yeah. or if they don't have certain family members. Well, because I, I have friends who are, in, you know, in the lower socioeconomic groups or whatever, and there's not that greater care. Like, mm. in, like you said earlier, Lockie, about the health system. That the less money you have, the worse you're treated yeah yeah so i think um i guess the other great thing on our side is everyone's got an interest in this because you know yes, potentially yes. everyone's going to end up in mm. aged care whether we like it or not so whether we like it or not so there's lots of voter interest and i guess that gives us some power to direct that i, I think it's interesting also that um, I did a little bit of looking to the most recent uh, Royal Commission and they did a bit of a uh, history of um, aged care and there, there's like, I don't know, in the last 10 or 15 years there's something been like 20 reviews, you know, so it's something mm. which is constantly being reviewed. Um, I get the feeling it's continuously improving but it's improving very slowly. Yeah, and I suppose there's not much motivation for even workers to go in and do the, the hard yards of being an aged care worker, you know what I mean? It's still pretty terrible money. I've got friends yeah. that work in aged care. It's actually pretty dismal. Mm. And they do various jobs, you know, yeah. Like, so that, that might be something that needs to be looked into, that um, you actually get more money by yeah. turning a stop slow bat on the yeah. road. Oh, they do actually. That's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see that a lot up here. And like my nan, yeah. actually, my nan worked in aged care for goodness knows how long. It was the first job I remember her doing. But um, I, I think she, you know, she was doing it for the motivation of you know, because we can't. I come from a small community in regional Tasmania, so yeah. twenty years ago, everyone that worked in aged care actually wanted to, and they cared yeah. for the people. And now we don't have that. And I will definitely yeah. say it's part of the younger yeah. generation. Some people might look, you know, because I'm big on generalisations too. Some people <laughs> certainly go in it for that, but some people do it because they actually just want a job. Yeah, and that's, no yeah. difference making coffee or. Yeah. I'm actually going to do something I don't normally do, and that's I'm going to pipe up because my background is nursing, mostly in aged care, and I was a nursing home inspector in the early 90s. And I have seen a lot of wonderful places and I've seen some dismal places. But the thing that makes the difference is the quality of the staff. And Mm. I worked with a lot of people who worked 
extremely hard and with great passion and got paid bugger all for it. It was heartbreaking. Yeah, and no, I think I've got to agree with that, Jeff. I, I, most of you know uh, the nursing homes I've seen through relatives and friends, the people who said staff are great. You know that that they um, you know look after them. They're genuine. Um, there's always the odd person. You know they they say, well, yeah, that person there is not quite as good as that person. Yeah. But I think in general the um, you know the people working in that industry work really hard and. You're not going to stick with a job that you don't really have a little bit of passion for, I guess. And I think there are a lot of passionate um, people there. And I, un- unfortunately, I think the newspapers highlight, or qu- you know, quite rightly, they should highlight the things that do go wrong and the things that are on the extremes. But I guess the downside of that is it does send this really negative stigma across, mm. you know, the whole industry and the good people that are working there. And I, I'm not too sure whether that's. Uh, that's real, real, real fair. There's no question there's things that are wrong and they've been highlighted, but, you know, to, to um, stamp the industry as a bad in- industry and yeah. people that don't care is, you know, pretty pretty tough because <laughs> they do an amazing, you know, mm. from what I've seen, they do an amazing and um, caring and it's so complicated. You know, it is just yeah. such a complicated process between, um, you know, the people that are there, the different conditions of the people, uh, you know, to deal with people dying in that sort of situation and other people coming and tri- just trying to manage that whole piece is a huge, you know, a huge challenge. And I've it seen... It is a massive undertaking and it's just a daily job. Yes, yeah. Yes. Correct. And, you know, I've known a director of one of those places and they worked extremely hard, were extremely caring and, you know, took on maybe a little bit too much of, of themselves in, in there. Uh, they worked mm. really hard. So, yeah, it's... Um, I, I think... You know, I think 95% of the people in there are probably doing the right thing and I reckon you could probably pick off 5% that are uh, really you know, taking advantage of the situation or not doing doing the um, the right right thing. And this is also generationally complicated. You know, it's a bit like schools. You know, you see your local schools flourish for one year and then 10 years down the track there's sort of no pupils because, you know, the geography changes and the... The demographics change. Um, the culture and, definitely um, changes. Cult, culture changes. The expectations change. I think, you know, as we become more digitally globalised, the culture changes as much more radically as well, I think. You know, yeah. it's like you were saying, Tracy, like, what was it, 20 or whatever years ago, everyone that was in aged care that was working for it was because... I actually wanted to do exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas now, and I don't know, this was maybe just the circle I surround myself with, but most people I see growing up, they want to do something more self-serving or maybe more artistically empowering instead of the hard yards because, again, this might just be my circle, um, but, you know, there's not as many people willing to go into trades or willing to do, you know, lawyer work for the the little guy. I mean, you can make a lot of money as an influencer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's the the modern-day celebrity somehow. So, so why would you want to go and wipe up someone's poo, you know? When you when can just you exist. Simply take a photo of yourself. Yeah, looking. exactly. Mm-hmm. We've raised a narcissistic and insecure oh. generation. <laughs> Whatever generations we are, wherever we end up, so long as they serve good coffee. Thank you very much for joining us today <laughs> in Jeff's Cafe. Tracy from Apollo Bay. Gary from Woi Woi. And Lockie from here in Sydney, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jeff. Okay, guys. Thank yeah, you. thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Lockie, Tracy. Thank Bye. you. And now it's time for Nostalgia Town, where we speak with well-known older Australians about the journey they took that makes them the person they are today. We have a great guest today, Professor Ian Fraser, who is a clinician scientist trained as a clinical immunologist in Scotland. As a professor at the University of Queensland, he leads a research group working at TRI in Brisbane, Australia, on the immunobiology of epithelial cancers. He is recognised as co-inventor of the technology enabling the HPV vaccines currently used worldwide to prevent cervical cancer. We women are thrilled. Thank you. He heads a biotechnology company, Jinjiang Medicine, working on new vaccine technologies, and he's a board member of several companies and not-for-profit organisations. He was the inaugural president of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences and a member of the Australian National Science and Technology Council. 
He chairs the Australian Medical Research Advisory Board of the Medical Research Future Fund. He was recognised as Australian of the Year in 2006, recipient of the Prime Minister's Prize for Science and of the Bolson Prize in 2008 and was elected Fellow of the Royal Society of London in 2012. He was appointed Companion of the Order of Australia in the Queen's Birthday Honours List in 2013. We welcome you, Professor Ian Fraser. Well, thank you for having me along, Patricia. Glad to be with you. Well, let's get to it. Where did I think I might know just by that wonderful accent? But tell us, where did you grow up? Look, I was obviously from Scotland. I was born in Glasgow, but I only managed to stay there for about six weeks before I was moved to Edinburgh. And I uh, grew up in Edinburgh and Aberdeen. What time was this when you were growing up? What was the, what was going on at that time? Uh, Scotland was thinking about trying to be independent. <laughs> it had been thinking about that for about 300 years by that time. <laughs> I haven't quite got there then and still hasn't got there now. But uh, when I was growing up, so the whole business of it, Scotland's oil was uh, one of the major slogans that was being passed around. But- I work in music and I keep running into absolutely talented music teachers who've uh, had careers in Scotland and brought brought their expertise to Australia. Can you remember growing up and having great musicians? I can remember them, but can you? I probably don't remember them as well as I should do these days. I mean, the, uh, Scotland was not a cultural centre, really, in the strict sense of the word. I mean, we, we were brought up in diets of Andy Stewart singing uh, oh. Scottish, Scottish <laughs> Highland songs of one sort or another. He was on the television every Saturday night. Uh, Donald wears the trousers. That sort of thing, yeah. A bit, a bit, of, a, a bit of everything, but uh, mostly at the comic end of the spectrum. What about movies? You must have gone to the pictures. Yeah, look, I, the very first picture I remember going to see was Lawrence of Arabia. Which was one of the, I mean, in those days going to pictures was a big treat and it was actually a treat for a mm. birthday party for me mm. for about my seventh or eighth birthday. Wow. I just remember being rather impressed by the scenery and the music. It was, a, can't remember the plot very much. I know I can retrospectively put it together because obviously he was pretty famous as, as Lawrence of Arabia, but it was more of the settings that were impressive for me. What brought you to Australia? Well, the standard answer is Qantas, of course, but uh, <laughs> I actually came out here, first of all, as a student. Uh, I was uh, a medical student in Edinburgh, and you had to spend three months somewhere other than Edinburgh during your training. And uh, at that time, the Australian government had a great scheme whereby you could fly out to Australia for free as an undergraduate because they were wanting to lure engineering students. And so, funnily enough, out of the hundred or so of us that came out, there were about 98 engineering students and then token medics somewhere thrown in for good measure. So I came out to Melbourne for three months and worked in Melbourne in a research laboratory there. Actually, didn't. What I really did was I got a Greyhound bus pass and went all around Australia in the buses and met up with people uh, around the country. You've probably met and seen more of Australia than we than most people have, but obviously you loved it enough to stay. What kept you here? Well, look, I, <laughs> again, the answer is a job, but I, I went back to Scotland to finish my medical training and indeed uh, I then worked for a few years in Scotland. But when I'd been out in Australia, the guy that I was working with, I uh, Professor Ian Mackay, who's recently passed away, uh, he uh, uh, said, you know, we'd like you to come back maybe sometime. And I really forgot about that entirely. And uh, uh, we went off. My, by that time, I was working and married. And uh, we went off on a skiing holiday, my wife and I. And when we came back, there was a telegram under the door of our apartment saying, where are you? And the idea was that he thought we'd have come back by then. Uh, and we sort of had to think very quickly about that. And we tore up our plans for what we were going to do in Scotland and headed out to Australia and came out in 1981 to Melbourne. What greeted you in Australia in those in those times that you remember? Was it was it difficult to adjust to so-called Australian culture? Oh, look, it was. I had the three-month training period in 1974 uh, when I came out, and I had been part of the student culture then. There was, the students were actually, in comparison with Scotland, they were relatively docile. I mean, in Scotland, we were fairly aggressive as students and uh, had opinions on things, but the students then were just having a good time. I mean, they were enjoying the student life. And when we came out here, well, the first thing I had to learn was what a shout was when you went to the pub. 
Uh, it's your shout. I don't know. <laughs> do I just shout? <laughs> what do I do? Uh, I learned pretty quickly this was a, a very strong hint that it was my turn to buy the drinks. Your particular love of what you do, your clinician science, it, when did you choose to do that? Whilst you were a student or after you graduated? Yeah, look, I did a little bit of that, Paddy, when I was out here as an undergraduate. and I wanted to find out whether research was going to be something I was interested in. But I worked as a doctor, for, as I say, in Scotland for five years without doing any research at all and then realised that it was probably going to be more interesting if I did research as well as the clinical work. And that was why I came back to Australia, because the opportunity was there to do some research work in what was, at that time, the best research institute worldwide for immunology, a place called the Walton Liza Hall Institute in Melbourne. Mm. And uh, all the papers that I read as a, as, a, as, a, as a student had come from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute, famous famous names like Ian Mackay, certainly, but Graham Mitchell and uh, Gus Nossel were authors on these papers, and I just wanted to see what was different about the place. turned out they were very much the same scientists as we met elsewhere, just that they were doing really good science, and uh, I was very happy to become part of that team. The last couple of years in particular have been a very busy time for immunologists. What how extensive is that field? Is is there a finite knowledge? Are we getting on top of it? Is there much we much more we need to know and find out? Well, look, it's interesting that the two bits of the body that we really don't understand yet are the brain and the immune system, the immunology, if mm. you like. I mean, we know how a kidney works, we know how your heart works, we know how muscles work, but we're still learning how your immune system works, and that's why it's so interesting, because mm. it's actually quite complex. Mm. It's almost as complex as a brain, and uh, therefore it's, and it's, it's a little easier to do experiments on. People don't like you experimenting on their brain, but they're reasonably comfortable with the idea of you taking some blood and doing some tests about their immune system. And where are we in that, in that knowledge? Do we, uh, are we finding out new things every day? Is there an end in sight? Well, we've gone a long way in the time that I've been studying immunology. When I started on immunology, the cells of the immune system were small round cells that went in the blood, and we didn't know how to tell them apart one from another or what they did. Uh, the, the last organ of the body to be uh, to have a purpose given to it was the thymus, which is one part of your immune system. And Jack Miller in Melbourne was the person who defined the function of that bit, bit of your body. So that was where it all started. Well, there was a bit done before that with uh, vaccines, but the reality is the understanding we now have started about the time I came out to Australia, and we're still learning. I mean, we still don't know enough. And is is it an ongoing battle? Do the the viruses get smarter as we get smarter? Well, they're selected for smartness. I mean, (laughs) the harder we push against them, the harder they learn to change. And uh, that's one of the challenges, of course, we face with COVID is it's not one virus it's uh, it's a generation of viruses and every time we push with a vaccine in one direction the virus moves in another direction to try and evade it and we've had that problem with flu viruses and vaccines for a long time mm-hmm. some viruses are easier to deal with the one that i was involved with the papilloma virus hadn't really changed in 10,000 years it was a very stable virus and therefore it was relatively easy to work on that one but the viruses we're working with that cause problems nowadays they're viruses that can change easily and they will do that if we push them hard enough. Is it easy to say there is an end in sight to COVID or it's or it's that tricky that we just don't know? It's hard to take. There will be an end to it uh, at some level. But, uh, I mean, the coronaviruses, that, that they cause a lot of different illnesses. One of the coronaviruses causes the common, some part of the common cold, and it's been evolving over the last 10,000 years, and now we regard it as totally trivial. Now, they say in due course, and maybe sooner rather than later, we'll regard the coronaviruses that cause COVID as relatively trivial. But right now, they're still evolving. They're probably, they came out of bats, two or three years ago, and they're evolving to live in humans. And, of course, from the Mm. virus's point of view, the virus doesn't really want to make us particularly sick. It just wants us to go around and cough on people and spread the virus. You're obviously, um, dare I say, a workaholic and probably always have been very, very busy. For fun, what do you do? Well, probably the thing I most enjoy to escape uh, from the work is skiing. 
I started snow skiing when I was a kid. Uh, didn't last very long. The first day I went out, I fell and twisted my knee and didn't get any further skiing that year. But it obviously didn't put me off because I've been skiing ever since. And I mm. met my wife. Uh, she was on the ski club bus that I was the bus convener for. And uh, we've skied together for the for the last 40-odd years now. Where do you go? Anywhere there's snow. <laughs> When COVID was on, I did manage to get a little skiing in down in Threadbow, but mostly we go across to the States to ski because the snow is best there. In the 40 years that you've been in Australia, what are the major cultural shifts you've observed? Well, I've watched my children growing up and they're part of the cultural shift and now I've got grandchildren and they're part of the cultural shift again. I think we're a bit, I mean, we were an easygoing country when I came here and we liked our freedom and our chance to go outside and do things. I think that's still true. I think we are, that's one of the reasons we stayed in Australia. It's a, you don't you don't feel uncomfortable when you're here. You, you know, it's not formal in any sense of the word. Uh, mm. We have g- great performing arts. We've got great uh, cultural life. We've got really good food, and we're in, international. I mean, the one thing that really impressed me when I came to Australia the second time was we, within 200 metres of where we lived in North Carlton, we could find six different ethnic sorts of cuisine in the restaurants and all cheap and all really good and uh, that certainly didn't exist in Scotland where it was all fish and chips and maybe if you were lucky <laughs> but how good is the fish and chips in Scotland I think it's the best actually I better not hear Australians <laughs> well you shouldn't say that too loudly but the fish is certainly the, good in Scotland. oh it's very good do you long for ever increasing money spent on research? Look, obviously, one of my jobs is to advocate for more money for research because research solves problems much better than guesswork. Uh, but uh, we also have to accept that it's not the highest all highest priority. Right at the moment, uh, there are many challenges that we face, including global mm. warming and, and uh, the recent floods and uh, mm. climate change is an issue. You know, we have to do research to find out how to make sure that doesn't become a big problem. I like medical research. Obviously, that's the way I'm trained. But I really want to see that when we make decisions about how we do things, we do it as much as possible based on research rather than guesswork. Indeed. And, Professor, outside of work, are you well connected socially? Is that important to you? Uh, my wife would say I'm not well connected socially. I tend to socialise with people who work in the same sort of area as I do. So I, that's why that's why I very much appreciate the, that my wife is able to help out in that area. She has a nice social network, which I'm allowed to join in. But also our kids have a social network, and we're part of that now. And I dare say as our grandchildren grow up, then they'll be part of that network too. Hmm. So maybe I'm, as when I retire, I will become more sociable. Do you acknowledge the importance of it? Oh, very much so, yes. I mean, it's a, look, I mean, society is all about socialising. We have to be part of society. You can live separate from society if you really want to, but society itself only works if we socialise. Medical research is actually a very social activity. People think we're all competing with each other, but we're not. We're actually collaborating all the time. The only time we compete is when we're after grant money, uh, because that's a competition, but... Uh, once we've got the grant money, then we just love to collaborate. And uh, we can only, once again, thank you for all of your work and that's kept us healthy and keeping us better and looking forward to uh, more good, healthy years. I want to thank uh, Professor Ian Fraser for being with us today and thank you, importantly, for the work you do, mm. which makes us all a better society. Well, thank sure you, and thanks, to Patty, for letting me take part. Thank you, Ian. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. And now it's time for Money Extra, where an expert on a particular finance topic gives us a brief life lesson on money. Greetings, baby boomers, guide listeners. I'm Professor Michael Sherris, and as Professor of Risk and Actuarial Studies at the University of New South Wales Business School, I'm often called upon to explain circumstances that can impact insurance premiums. The short answer is that currently, climate change, natural disasters and inflation are all contributing to higher insurance costs. So what can you do to minimise your premiums while maintaining coverage? Firstly, ask is it a large or a small risk? When it comes to large risks, such as living in an area prone to sea level rise or flooding, it's important to have coverage but the cost can be reduced through a deductible 
at a level that can be managed within your budget. When it comes to insurance, consider the cost of coverage and how much risk you can afford to finance from your savings. Make decisions about insurance coverage and how much risk to take for different types of insurance. For example, if you are driving fewer kilometres, consider increasing your deductible and looking for an insurer or policy which charges premiums based on mileage. Review the coverage of all your insurances regularly and when it comes to renewing, shop around and get multiple quotes. If you've been with the same insurer for several years, your premiums may have increased and you could find that changing to a different insurer results in a lower premium. Finally, consider a mutual insurer. Although there are very few mutual insurers in Australia, they can sometimes provide a better deal than for-profit insurers since they may not load the premium for profits and returns to shareholders. And now it's time for Stepping Out, where we speak with older people from around Australia, showcasing their communities and community radio stations, and telling us why you might want to visit sometime. Today we're stepping out to Canberra to meet German-born Heinrich Stefanik, one of Australia's leading lights of ethnic community radio. Hey, listen, I've got to correct you right oh, from the beginning. Oh, God, here we go. I was brought up in Germany, but I was born in the Carpathian Mountains in Transylvania. Oh. So, you know, oh. Yes. And what, what, happens on, what happens on the full moon? Oh, well, that's uh, – you're, you're safe most of the time with me. But let me tell you, <laughs> I was thinking about that. You know, you call this the boomers. Now, yes. the boomers are what? Anywhere from 1940-something onwards. 1946. Yeah, that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to hear. 1946, because I was born in 1944. Well, that's all right. You can be an honorary baby. There were boomer. plenty of boom booms around us. So oh. I am a boomer. Oh, baby. well, indeed, yeah. there you were. Know, we were refugees fleeing through the Carpathian Mountains because the Red mm. Army was pushing up from what is the Ukraine actually. Yeah. And, uh, well, eventually we ended up in Germany. Yeah. Heinrich, would it be okay if I say that you're Vice President of Canberra's Multicultural Service radio station, CMS FM 91.1? Any objections about that? Uh, no, you're correct. You've okay. Got, you've, got, you've got good sources. Can I go on to say you've been involved in National Multicultural Broadcasters Council and the Community Broadcasting Foundation? Are you happy with that? Yes. Okay, yes. good. Good. <laughs> I just you, could, you could say oh, here since we the 1970s. Since the 1970s. <laughs> is that when you came to Australia, Heinrich? No, no. I came to Australia in 1958 as a 13-, oh. 14-year-old. And I didn't like it. I didn't like it. What didn't you like? Well, I was being migrated. You know, uh-huh. I just as a, as a refugee child in Munich, we just sort of uh, settled in. Mm. I was just getting on famously with everybody, and then my parents decided to to come to Australia. And we kids weren't asked. Do you like it now? Oh, well, it's grown. It's grown on me. Yes, I fell, <laughs> I fell in love with Australia eventually. And, uh, and, and, and once I came to Canberra, I've never really left Canberra since, you know. And it sounds like Canberra fell in love with you too, which is what we'd like to talk about today. Over the years, you and I have spoken uh, seriously on, uh, I mean, we've made light of this subject, but we've also spoken very seriously about the difficulties facing migrants, particularly young people. Uh, And at the period where you migrated, of course, the expectation was that you would assimilate and become part of what was a British colonial culture. Can you tell us about those days? Well, (laughs) certainly. Uh, It all started uh, quite early uh, when I was to be enrolled in school and I was asked through an interpreter what my name was. And I said, oh, Heinrich, Heinrich Stefanik, you know. And they said, what's this, Heinrich? That's not a name. We'll call you Henry. <laughs> but I've I've compromised. I'm calling myself Heinrich these days, but uh, stubborn right from the beginning. There was no ESL. You know, we had to pick up English wherever we found it. And as long as we were in the back of the class or at the back of the class, it was fine. You know, as long as it didn't disturb things happening at the front. So I sat next to a Danish boy who spoke a little bit of German I taught him German, he taught me Danish. So there you go. And then every now and then, lunchtime or whatever, whenever the, the teacher really paid attention to us, we had to try to answer in the English language. Yeah. And whereabouts was that? That was in Bulongong. 
Oh, wow. And then we lived, of all places, in Dapto, you know, mm. which Dapto. I was a great, mm. well, I wouldn't say I have great memories, but I remember being part of the athletics club and we were allowed to train on the dog racing track. Dapto dog is unfortunate uh, rhyming slang that was around for a while as well. Yeah, for many years I avoided Dapto because I was almost allergic to it. However, uh, you know, you can't get away from it. And on the way to to Sydney through Macquarie Pass coming down Dapto, I saw a sign, Dapto Kebab. Uh. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't believe it. This little bush town, which had about 800 people in, uh, you know. Uh, What attracted you to broadcasting? Well, I suppose, you know, just a really deep-seated desire to hear my language. Mm. And in those days, you just never really heard it on Australian radio. Oh, I remember, I don't know if we're old enough, you remember that Ivan Robich song, Morgan, Morgan? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, when we heard that, that just, you know, just, ah, mm. yeah. Mm. And then um, I remember once hearing on the ABC uh, something about the magic flute. And, you know, it has spoken parts in it, and they were in German. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, but anyway, it, it, it was that. I compensated partially by listening to shortwave. I was quite an avid shortwave listener and international broadcasting. That was my window to the world. On your community radio station these days, how many different nationalities do you think you might be attracting? Talking about nationalities is a bit difficult. You know, we, we go on the basis of language, and uh-huh. some languages, of course, are spoken in different in different countries. And uh, so, for example, German. I, I do a program together with Swiss colleagues and uh, also Austrian colleagues. And if you talk about nationality, I suppose I'm taking it in the sense of what's written in your passport, oh, or at least your original passport, yeah. And because of the ever-changing world and the ever-changing kinds of refugees that we bring into Australia, Ukrainians at the moment, people from Ukraine? Yes, well, we had Ukrainians in Canberra. They've got a lovely little Ukrainian centre and so on, Mm. and they were quite instrumental in setting up the first Ethnic Communities Council. Uh That was a sort of like a grassroots movement. Uh, it was uh, sort of encouraged, I suppose, particularly after the Whitlam years or during the Whitlam years. For example, my naturalisation certificate has been signed by none others than Al Grasby. Mm. And whenever I met him in the years later, I always say, here's my Australian daddy. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely man. Heinrich, it seems such an obvious thing to say, but with your vast experience in community radio, When you look back now, what do you think have been the great benefits of multicultural broadcasting? Well, it's a a very tangible expression of the whole concept of multiculturalism. You know, in the 1970s or early 1980s, if you talked about multiculturalism, you were being probably watched by ASIO, you know, because you could be dividing. And I remember having a discussion with a certain Queensland minister, minister from Queensland who was minister for immigration, and he said, when we talked to him and we talked to him about the, the concept of a national policy on languages, he says, oh, what you ethnics are doing is you are dividing this country. You know? mm. And and we had to try to convince him that, you know, English is everywhere. You can't get away from it. If anything, you need a little protection, mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you want to maintain your language because, mm. you know, the, the onslaught of English is there all day long. And, and as we know, in very many um, uh, ethnic language communities, the language is not really transferred to the next generation with great success. What program do you present? What type of content do you offer listeners? Yeah, well, the program is called Treffpunkt, which, is, uh, which means sort of meeting place. I've sort of grown up or grown along over many years with, with my language community. Canberra had a, a couple of waves. Uh, one of them was called the Jennings Germans when, uh, you know, they, were, they brought in a lot of builders and other people came back from the Snowy Mountain Scheme. And, and uh, so there was a sizable sort of German-speaking community. And um, it was quite easy to do broadcasting then, you know, a mm. lot of volunteers, lots of people coming in and, uh, and also wanting to listen. You know, they all had this deficit. 
You could have played any scratchy old record and they would have still wept, you know, about. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's part of that content. But these days I call the program Treffpunkt, or it is called Treffpunkt. When I say my program, it's not my program, it's the community's program. But I do it on behalf of the community. And I get lovely feedback when people say, oh, you know, it's on Tuesday night from for, for two hours. And they say, oh, these two hours on a Tuesday night, they're the best hours in oh. the week. And it's such a pity that there's only one Tuesday in the week. <laughs> uh, that that's must make you feel fantastic and want to do more and more. That's great. Well done. Oh, yeah, it locks you in. It, it, this mm. is quite actually, uh, in a way, it's a bit dangerous almost. You know, you, you do things. And then we had meetings in between, uh, we, listeners' meetings, as we call them, we'll get feedback. But the, the content of the program really, you know, the, the tagline in German is it's it's a, a program for Herz, Kopf und Seele. And, and Herz is heart, Kopf is your head, and Seele is your soul. Mm. So it's it's a program that it doesn't shy away from, from uh, talking about things like, uh, you know, the need for hope in our lives or, you know, just uh, something about the snow mountain scheme, you know, and what what people contributed to it from, mm. and so on. So very broad, very broad ranging. And and only uh, the other day I got a got a, a text message saying, well, you know, listening to you, we all become <laughs> we all become experts because of all things. I ran a program on butterflies. Once you start looking at these little animals, they're fantastic. Mm. You know, they can they can see, for example, uh, no, no, they see with their eyes, but they can hear with their with their wings, for mm. example. And they mm. can sense mm. things and uh, and so on. So and and um it was it was an interesting sort of scientist talking about all sorts of uh, things that butterflies do. Um, unfortunately, I, I probably timed it badly because there are no butterflies in Canberra at the moment. But, <laughs> but you know, by the time summer comes, they all will be experts on butterflies, mm. I'm sure. Heinrich, you've been such a stalwart of um, community broadcasting and, and a, a volunteer and a, an absolute servant. And, you've, you know, you've devoted your life to it, it seems. But I, I'm curious to know... If community radio hadn't taken up so much of your time and energy, where would you have put that time and energy otherwise? Well, I would have probably put it into some some type of uh, some sort of writing or expression like that. I, I've, I've, I've scribbled, I've kept diaries for quite a while, and um, I've I've had various attempts at writing little short stories. I ran a couple of community writing projects, and well, you know, I studied uh, at the ANU when I came here. I studied uh, literature and got stuck in particular into Scandinavian literature, and you know, the, the Icelandic family sagas really captured me, and the, mm. the style that they present is, is is wonderful, and that would have occupied me. The other thing is, well, what else could I have done I, in Canberra? Well, I worked also in the public service uh, so for quite a few years. And I was actually fortunate or lucky to be in a situation where I could contribute to certain policies uh, as a policy research officer. For example, the National Policy on Languages. You know, that was just right, right up my my alley, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was able to combine to combine things like that. And um, the other thing that's happening now is that, you know, because the communities, um, well, my listeners are aging. I've got to got to confess it. You know, they're, they're, we we have very few people under sixty uh, yeah. listening, but they are also. It's almost, I don't know if that's the right word, but but because you have a link to them and they trust you and so on, they talk to you and they invite you and 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 uh, and you have to you know talk to them. And for example, on more than one funeral, I had to sort of, if you like, uh, speak because a lot of the people there couldn't speak German all mm-hmm. that fluently anymore. And mm-hmm. uh, and I became a bit of a sort of a voice piece for for them in in their mother tongue. Heinrich, you have a wide network through your community radio connections. Um, and I just wonder how important that is for you to maintain those social connections. Well, I suppose basically that's what your life is about. You know, I mean, I'm now uh, a super, what's the word, super annuant. And, well, what am I going to do with myself? 
all day long. You know, the money comes in fairly, well, every fortnight regularly. And well, you can't go past the fact that we are social beings, you know, as, 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 as humans. And, well, it's great to talk to people. And as you get older, a bit of reminiscing is actually quite uh quite wonderful as Lex and I were starting off before, you know, reminiscing this, reminiscing that, and putting it in a nutshell, you know, we are we are not on this earth on our own. You know, mm. we do need contacts. And that can be family, uh, it, it can be friends. And, you know, sometimes uh, even people that you don't get along with too well, they still set your parameters, you know. Mm. Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed they do. Yeah, it indeed sounds like do. many people in Canberra and beyond have much to thank you for, for your fabulous contribution to their lives, your volunteering, your interest in them and maintaining that interest. And uh, thank you. And Heinrich, my dear friend, it's so wonderful to catch up with you. Stay well, stay healthy, and uh, stay on air. Look, I'll, I'll try my best. And uh, just as a last footnote, I, I have also been on other radio stations here in Canberra. There, there is a sub-metro one um, uh, called Valley FM, on which I've been presenting a program called Pretzel Funk, which is a good, fun <laughs> program. Lunchtime, pretzels. You know, as I said, pretzels, polkas, and fun. Can't hold me back just for a Tuesday night. You know? No way, no way. Good on you, Heinrich. And, and you know, on behalf of um, of our listeners and uh, and all around the country, and thank you for the great uh, contribution you've made to the richness of our community radio. Well, and it's not finished yet. You know? No, so, no, I'm uh, sure it's not. Thanks, Heinrich. Thanks, well, Heinrich. Wonderful to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Wow, that was a terrific show, wasn't it, Lex? It certainly was, but I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted just listening to it. Mm. I, I haven't had so much fun in, well, <laughs> I don't know, last time my bags didn't turn up. <laughs> next week, uh, next week, see, I've got to have a rest to recover for next week. Next week we're talking about technology with Christine David, who's wonderful on this subject, about how older people deal with technology. And we must not be ageist because I know plenty of older people who are fantastic with technology. It's so good to see. And, of course, Jeff's Cafe. Yes, Eloise, Laurelin and Kay Patterson. Who's taking us to Nostalgia Town? Oh, someone you and I know quite well, and she's a treat, Margaret Roadnight. Oh, what a legend she is. She sure is. Singer, folk singer, blues singer, jazz singer, everything singer. Fantastic Gospel singer. Woman. Gospel singer. Mm. Yeah, defies categorisation. And we'll also talk about uh, diversity is the key with uh, Mark Binham in... Money. Money, money, money. And then we'll wander our way to to CFM where Liz Bellet-Stubbs will help us step out. Yes. Good on you, Liz. We'll look forward to that. That's it for this week. Yeah, what a week. See you next week. Ta-da. Baby Boomer's Guide to Life is produced on the Gadigal and Wongal lands of the Eora Nation in association with the Older Women's Network. Baby Boomer's Guide is funded by the Extra Foundation, which works to ensure that more Australians are confident making money decisions today and into the future. You can find out more by going to extra.org.au. That's E-C-S-T-R-A dot org.au. And don't forget, if you've missed any episodes, catch up on your favourite podcast app and online at babyboomersguide.com.au. Plus... You can join the conversation and have your say on our Baby Boomer's Guide to Life Facebook page. Your Baby Boomer's Guide to Life hosts are Senior Influencers of the Year, Patricia Little Paddy Amphlett and me, Big Lex Marinos. Get Get connected connected and stay stay connected. connected.